You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you know, the other day I was at Starbucks and I'm waiting in line for them to make my drink. I had already placed my order, so now I'm waiting in line for them to make my drink and I'm just watching one person after another person you know, keep coming up and get their drinks. But the problem is I ordered like way before they did. And so I see this person and that person and another and after all, I'm starting to get a little frustrated because you know, there's only two things in this world that I just despise. That's waiting in line and then waiting in line for my caffeine. You know, and so, so I'm standing there and it's just one person after another person after another person. And finally, after what feels like an eternity, the, the barista, she calls out and says, I've got a, an out-of-order drink for Paul. Yeah, yeah, story of my life. Now listen, the reason I share such a painful and traumatic story with you is because the, the title of today's message is Out of Order. That's, that's the title, Out of Order. Now, by the way, in, in the interest of full disclosure, last week we started teaching uh, chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, but then at the last minute last week, I, I realized that I accidentally skipped the last part of chapter 4. And so literally, today's message is out of order. I literally have an out of order message for you this morning. But you know, when you think about it, it's actually quite fitting because this group that we've been talking about for the last several weeks called the Judaizers, they too were out of order, right? Now I say that because they, they had put the emphasis on the wrong order. They, they had put the emphasis on the law rather than grace. They put the emphasis on the flesh rather than the spirit. So they were out of order. They had it in the wrong order. So now on that note, as we go back now to verse 21 through 24, first of all, the Apostle Paul gets historical. He, he gives a, a, a sample from history, a history lesson to make a point. So he says again in verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. We'll pause here. By the way, let me point out that, that most scholars often agree that, that, this is, that this is considered one of the most difficult passages in, in the entire book of Galatians, if not out of all of, of, of the Apostle Paul's writings. In fact, uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, speaking about the Apostle Paul, once said this. Peter said, our brother Paul wrote many things that are hard to understand, to which we're like, yeah, amen to that. And, and, and here's why, by the way, this passage is so hard to understand. It's so difficult to understand. It's difficult for two reasons. Number one, it's difficult to understand because this passage just assumes that you have like a master's understanding of the Old Testament. That you have like a deep understanding of the Old Testament. But here's the problem. Many Christians today do not have a, a deep understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, some Christians today don't even know what the Old Testament is. So let me help you. Uh, here, here, class is in session. So when we say the Old Testament, what that means is all of the books in the Bible before the birth of Jesus Christ. That would be the Old Testament. So what's the rest of the Bible? That would be the New Testament. Okay, class is dismissed. Okay, so, but a lot of people, that we don't even know what the Old Testament is. And so that's what makes this, number one, so difficult. You have to have a deep understanding of the Old Testament. But then number two, the thing that makes this so difficult is that the Apostle Paul uh, was, was using a, a common debate tool among the rabbis in that period of time. 
Now listen, if you were a rabbi, then, then you would have no problem following Paul's line of reasoning, Paul's, Paul's line of logic here. But because most of us in this room are not rabbis, we read Paul's words and, and, and we scratch our heads and we're like, you know, you know it, just, it just doesn't make any sense to us. And, and so let me help you with that. Here's the, the, the line of reasoning, the, 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 easy for me to say, debate tool that Paul was using. The line of reasoning, he's using three lines of reasoning. If you're taking notes, write these down. This will change your life. Number one, his line of reasoning was historical. He's using a historical line of reasoning. Number two, he then uses an allegorical line of reasoning. Allegorical. And then number three, a personal line of reasoning. Historical, allegorical, and personal. That's the debate tool that Paul's using. And so first of all, in this first section, Paul gets historical. He takes a lesson from history to make a point. He says that there, there are two sons with, with, with two moms. And, and of course, the two sons were the sons of Abraham, and their names were Ishmael and Isaac. Now, of course, Ishmael was, was born of Hagar, the slave woman who was from Egypt. Whereas Isaac, on the other hand, he was born of the free woman named Sarah. She, she was Abraham's wife. Now, we read their stories all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16 where we read that, that Abraham and his wife Sarah, had, after waiting for 10 long years for God's promise to finally come about and be fulfilled in their life, uh, they're at this point where, you know, 10 years ago, God had, had promised Sarah and Abraham in their old age. In fact, Sarah was actually barren. She was, she was infertile. It was impossible for her to have children. God promised them that, that they would have a son. In fact, God promised that, that their descendants would be so numerous that literally Abraham would be the father of an entire nation. Well, now 10 years go by, and now Abraham and Sarah are getting impatient. They're, they're getting tired of waiting. And so one day, Sarah comes up to her husband, Abraham, and she's like, you know, hey, Abe, that's probably what she called him, Abe, you know, hey, Abe, you know, maybe, maybe for God's promise to come about in our life, maybe we need to help him out a little bit. You know, maybe he'll do his part if we do our part. So I was thinking, you know, maybe what you should do is, is have relations with my servant girl named Hagar. Because after all, because I own her, that means I own whatever she owns. And so that means that, that her son would be my son. I looked this up in the Hebrew, but, but what Abraham said was, okay, honey. You know, he just, with a big dumb dumb goes along with it. And, and so the, the moral of the story in, in, in Genesis 16 is, is, that, is that they took matters into their own hands. Now, by the way, historically speaking, in, in, in that culture, in the ancient world at that time, what they were doing was a common practice in that ancient world. This is a common thing to do. I mean, listen, if, if your wife was, was unable to bear children, then a common practice in that day was to take your concubine and have, have, have children with her so that your family name and your family line would continue. And so this was a very normal and common practice in that world at that time. But listen, this just reminds us that, that, that God's people always get into trouble when we take our cues from this world rather than take our cues from the word. When we take our cues from this world rather than taking our cues from God's word. And so we read in Genesis chapter 16, after, after Sarah tells Abraham her, her wonderful idea, it then says in Genesis 16 verse 2, it says, and Abram, that was his name, you know, God changes his name and Sarah's name a little later, just read the book of Genesis, you'll find out. Hey, but after Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, now on the surface, that doesn't seem like that's that significant. 
Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Until you look up the word listened in the original Hebrew, and, and you see that it means much, much more than just hearing the sound of her voice, just listening to the words coming out of her mouth. Uh, really, the, the word there, shema in the Hebrew, is an interesting word. In fact, it's often used in your relationship with God. You know, uh, for example, uh, this is a word that literally means to obey. You see it, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And so this word Shema, it means to obey. And so the problem here was not just that Abraham was listening to the sound of her voice, hearing the words coming out of her mouth. No, the problem was that he obeyed her voice as if it was the voice of God himself. He obeyed her. Now listen, Abraham knew the voice of God. In fact, he knew the word of God and he knew the promise of God and yet he chose to listen to his wife. He chose to obey his wife rather than obey his God. And that was the problem. Now, in the same way, you know, nowadays, you can buy uh, an English Bible, an English translated Bible in all kinds of different versions, right? I mean, you know, you get online, Amazon or whatever. I mean, you can buy like a, an NIV, a New International Version. You can buy an NLT, a New Living Translation. You can get the King James Version, the Old King James, the New King James. You can, you can get a, a New American Standard. You can get this version and that version. But I like the way Howard Hendricks, the late Howard Hendricks from, from Dallas Theological Seminary once put it. He said, for many of us, we actually prefer the reverse standard version. Now, what's the reverse standard version? He says, well, that's when God's word speaks to you. You read God's word, and it's speaking to you about an area in your life that you clearly need to change, and then you do the reverse. You, you, you disobey. You do the exact opposite. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. They, they did the reverse of what God was telling them to do. And, and now for Sarah, things don't turn out the way Sarah had hoped that they would. Because now when, when Hagar gives birth to her son Ishmael, that also gave birth to, to jealousy and bitterness and rivalry. So much so that in Genesis chapter 21, after Sarah finally has her own baby, after Sarah gives birth to Isaac, she one day catches Hagar's son Ishmael, the Bible says, mocking Isaac. Now listen, this was more than just, just you know, typical sibling rivalry between brothers, or in this case, half-brothers. No, the idea from the original, the, the text implies, the idea was, was that she feared for her, her son's safety. She was fearing for his life. So she convinces Abraham to kick Hagar and Ishmael out, to kick him to the curb. But again, the, the, the summary of the story of Genesis 16 is, is that Abraham and Sarah were taking matters into their own hands. They, they were trusting the flesh rather than trusting the promise. They took matters into their own hands, trying to force it to happen, and it created all sorts of problems. I mean, when you think about it, uh, Hagar, her son Ishmael, he actually becomes the forefather for all of the Arabic nations. Isaac becomes a forefather for the nation of Israel. So now when you think of that, you think of, of all of the tension, you think of all of the strife, all of the conflict that have been between those two for centuries, and it's all rooted right here because Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands rather than wait for God. And so this reminds us that it's always a bad idea to rush the Lord when we should have been waiting on the Lord. It's always a bad idea to, to try to push it and force it to happen than it is to wait for the promise to happen. 
And so that's the historical. Paul now gives that historical story. Now, I gave you much more than Paul did because he just assumes you're a master of the Old Testament and that you already knew this. But just in case you didn't, that's the historical. And now he takes the historical and now he makes a point with it. He, he now makes it allegorical. He, he's going to figuratively, metaphorically make a point. And so now in verses 24 through 27, we read, Now, Paul says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Now, by the way, this is how we know this is, is an allegory. This is how we know it's, it's metaphorical. Because he says that, that Hagar was from Mount Sinai. She was not. She was from Egypt. So he's, he, this is not literal. He, he's making a point. He's, he's making an illustration. He says, he says these two women are, are, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. And now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with present Jerusalem for, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it's written, and now, now he's quoting from Isaiah 54, by the way saying, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So now again, all of this starts off with that statement in verse 24, where Paul says that this may be interpreted allegorically. Now before we break this down, let me just say, yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes that, that, that some uh, circles with, within Christianity today, you know, one of the biggest mistakes we make is, is that there are some Christians today who, who want to make like everything in the Bible an allegory. They're all like, you know, well, this means that, and that means this, and this doesn't really mean what it says, but, but really what it means is this, and, and they want to make everything an allegory, everything like a figure. You know, I think one of the greatest examples, you know, comes, comes from that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, where, where, where it says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, but a, a thousand years is as one day. Now, by the way, can I just say to you that, that all that passage was intended to mean was that God is patient. God's got all the time in the world. He's not in a hurry. You cannot force him and rush him and try to make him do something faster than he wants to do. He's got all the time in the world. That's all that was meant to say. But there are some who will be like, oh, you know what that means? That means that in the Bible, anytime a thousand years is mentioned, it's just one day. Or you know what? Anytime one day is mentioned, that's really a thousand years. And, and this means that, and this means this. It's like the guy who prayed and, and, and said, you know, God, how long is a million years to you? And God answered his prayer, and God said, well, a million years to me is, is like a single second of your time. The guy says, wow, that is so amazing. He says, God, you know what? Well, I, you know, how much is a million dollars to you? And God answers back and says, well, a million dollars to me is like a single penny of your money. Like he says, wow. Well, 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 Lord, could I have a penny? And the Lord says, sure, in just a second. <laughs> but you know, there are some who, who want to take a passage like the one that we just read and they'll say, well, you know, if, if, if Paul can, can interpret this passage allegorically, well, then that means I can interpret any passage I want to allegorically. I can make any passage in the Bible mean whatever I want it to mean. Well, now hold on, buckaroo. Hey, you have to understand that this was the exception, not the rule. This is the exception, not the rule. And furthermore, we need to keep in mind that, that, that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing Scripture. 
And so what that means is, is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was actually leading Paul to come up with this, with this analogy. He, he, was, he was leading Paul to use this illustration of, 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 of Hagar and, and Sarah uh, to, to illustrate the conflict between the flesh and the promise, between the law and grace. So first he gives a historical, he, he, he gives you the history lesson, and now he makes an analogy. This is the allegorical. He says, you know, there's, there's two boys and there's two moms. And he says, and they represent two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, law versus grace. And, 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 and really, again, this was all because Abraham and Sarah doubted the promise of God. It was all because they failed to live by faith in the promise and instead they took matters into their own hands and they tried to, in the flesh, force the promise to take place. And that's how Ishmael was born, right? So that's Paul's analogy. But then later, Isaac was born. And Isaac was born of the promise of God. It wasn't because they tried to make it happen. In fact, it was impossible to happen. They were both in their old age and Sarah was infertile. And they didn't have like, you know, uh, you know, special doctors for that. This was like impossible. This was miraculous. And in, 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 in the same way, just as our new birth in Christ is miraculous. Our new birth, birth where, where, where Jesus comes into our life and he changes our lives from the inside out. Not from the outside in, from the inside out. Now, by the way, we should mention that, that, that Paul was really picking up on a point that he'd made earlier back in chapter 3. You may remember back in chapter 3, uh, Paul talked about two covenants, a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with Moses. Remember this? And, and he said that, that, that the covenant with Abraham was based on the promise of God, whereas Moses' covenant was based on obeying the law of God. And, and then likewise, he, he said that, that the emphasis of Abraham's covenant was based on what God would do, whereas the emphasis of Moses' covenant was based on what the people would do. Moses' covenant was filled with things like, thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do that. It was all based on what the people would do. And so now Paul takes that same theme from chapter 3, and, and now he, he, he tells a, a historical story of Sarah and, and Hagar, but he puts a new twist on it and says it's an illustration. He says it's a metaphor. And so he says, you know what, metaphorically speaking, Hagar is really an illustration of what it looks like to do it in the flesh, to do it in your own strength. Whereas, he says, Sarah is an illustration of, of salvation by faith. In other words, it's not based on, on what you do, it's based on what he has already done. It's, it's not based on, on you trying to take matters into your own hands and, and trying to force it to happen and earn it and, and, and work for it. Rather, it's based on you just waiting and receiving the promise of God, the promise of salvation. Now, namely, the promise of salvation is Jesus himself. And, and so Paul takes the historical, and now he makes it an, an allegory. He makes it an illustration to make a point. And so now as we pick it up in verses 28 and 29, now Paul makes it personal. This is the personal application. He says in verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And so Paul points out how, how Ishmael and, and his descendants persecuted Isaac and his descendants. Now, by the way, 
long before Ishmael was even born, we find out that God had given a prophecy about Ishmael to his mother, Hagar. In fact, it says in in Genesis chapter 16, uh, speaking of Ishmael, God says, he shall be a wild man. Now, some translations uh, render it, he will be a donkey of a man. In fact, one translation takes it a step further. It doesn't use the word donkey, but it uses a word like donkey, but it starts with the word jack. Three letters afterwards. Just telling you what the translation says. And so he'll be a wild man, it says. And his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand will be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And so even before Ishmael was born, God was warning Hagar, his mother, that there was going to be a wild streak in Ishmael. In fact, so much so that that Ishmael was going to be mean and and vindictive and literally be against everybody around him. And not only that, everybody around him was going to be against him. And so now Paul takes that, that, that constant friction between Ishmael and Isaac and also their descendants, the Arabic peoples and the Jewish peoples. He takes that constant conflict and now figuratively is using that as an illustration of those who live by faith and who live by the Spirit and how they're going to be persecuted by those who don't, by those who don't live by faith. And by the way, that should never surprise us. It should never surprise us when, 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 you know, when you're living by faith and you're trying to walk with the Lord that you are being persecuted. Why do I say it shouldn't surprise you? Because Jesus warned you again and again and again that you will be persecuted. In fact, he started it off in, in, in Matthew 5.11 and he said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. But over and over again, Jesus warned us that we would be persecuted. This is why the late W.T. Uh, w. Percussor said, Jesus spoke more about trouble and crosses and persecution than he ever did about happiness. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we're being persecuted. But in this case, what, what is so surprising is where the persecution was coming from. Hey, listen, it's one thing when, when an unbeliever mocks you. It's one thing when an unbeliever attacks you. It's one thing when an unbeliever persecutes you. But you know what? In this case, with the Galatians that Paul's writing to, who was it that was persecuting them? It was the so-called Judaizers. And the Judaizers claimed that they were brothers. The Judaizers claimed that, that they were fellow sons of God, just like them. The Judaizers claimed that they believed in Jesus, just like they believed in Jesus. And so just like Isaac and Ishmael were brothers, this persecution was coming from their so-called brothers, the Judaizers. As commentator James Montgomery Boyce put it, he said, the persecution Christians face will not always be by the world, but also and indeed more often by their half-brothers, the unbelieving but religious people in the nominal church. So what it's saying is that, you know what? Yeah, you, you'll, you'll face persecution by people by people who don't believe in Jesus. But don't be surprised that some of the persecution you face comes from people who claim they believe in Jesus. You know, they they, they call themselves believers, but it turns out they're not really believers. They they think they're believers, but but they just go to church. They're just religious people. You know, yeah, they go to church, they, they have a Bible, they pray before they eat, but they don't really have a personal relationship with the Lord. They're just religious And oftentimes, they're the ones that will say things to you like, you know what, I think you're taking this faith thing way too far. 
I mean, hey, look, I, I'm religious too, but, but you know what? I think you're getting too radical with this Christianity thing. I think you need to tone it down. I think, you know, you, you need to keep your belief to yourself. And so what Paul's telling them is, is that if you're going to live by faith like Abraham lived by faith, if you're going to live by faith like Isaac lived by faith, if you're going to live a life of faith, then don't be surprised when you're persecuted by those who are not living by faith. Even though they claim they are. They, they are your unbelieving half-brothers. Your religious half-brothers. Now on that note, verses 30 and 31, now Paul gets things back in order. He puts things back in the right order. He says in verse 30, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And so, just as, as, as Sarah and Hagar could not live under the same roof together in the same way, law and grace cannot live in the same heart together. So what does the Apostle Paul say to do? He says, cast out the slave woman. Now keep in mind, Hagar, the, the slave woman, Hagar represents a, a life of being enslaved to the law, a life of being enslaved to the flesh. Whereas Sarah, the free woman, she represents a life of freedom by receiving the promise of God, receiving the promise of your salvation, namely in Jesus, and receiving the Holy Spirit. So in effect, what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? Whenever we try to conquer the sin in our lives through the law, we always end up as a slave to the law. Whenever we're trying to conquer the sin in our life through the law, we end up as a slave to the law. In fact, listen, did you know that the Bible teaches that the law actually arouses our desire to sin? Let me say that again. The law arouses our desire to sin. Listen to this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And so that passage is telling us that the law is what arouses our sinful passions. Let me illustrate it this way. You see, the law tells us, do not do this and, and do not do that. But I don't know about you, but, but you know, as soon as the law says, do not do this and do not do that, now all of a sudden, all I can think about is doing the very thing the law told me not to do. Anybody else in the room like me? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you know is there anybody else who, who, like, the moment somebody says, do not do this, I'm like, you're not the boss of me. I mean, listen, I mean, somebody can walk up and tell me there are 581,678,934,341 stars in the universe. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds right. Sounds, that sounds like a good, I'll take that, I'll believe that. But the moment there's a park bench that, that has a sign on it that says, wet paint, do not touch, I've got to investigate it for myself. It says, do not touch, and now I want to touch it. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I read about a hotel years ago in Galveston, Texas, in the Gulf of Mexico. And all their hotel rooms, the balconies of them lined up against the shoreline. They were just right up against the beach. And so they had to post these signs on every room that, that said, No fishing from the balcony. Why? Because guest after guest after guest brought their tackle box and their rod and their reel and they're casting into the gulf. And, they're, you know, and, and so now there's, there's like lures and, 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 and hooks and, and, and old line just all over the place. It was just a royal mess. 
So they have all these signs out there that say, no fishing allowed. Well, I mean, you know, just this went on and on. And, and finally, one day, the management, they just got, they got fed up with it. And they threw their hands in there and they just, they gave up. They took all of the signs that said, no fishing. They took them all down. And when you believe in that moment, when they took all those signs down from that moment on, not a single person ever tried to fish from those balconies again. I mean, you tell them no fishing and now they want to fish, but you take the signs down that say do not fish and they don't want to fish anymore. And so that's what Paul means when he says that, 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 that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. You tell us not to do it and now we want to do it. And then Paul takes, uh, takes it a, a little further and he gives his own personal example, his own personal illustration. He goes on in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, and he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, do not covet. Now it's interesting. On the one hand, Paul's saying, you know, I, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't even know what sin is. Then he also says, you know what, if the law didn't say do not covet, then I wouldn't have known what covetousness was. Now, it's interesting. In effect, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you know what, out of all of the law, out of all of the commandments, you know the one commandment that got me, the one that really tripped me up? It's that whole coveting thing. You know, the tenth out of the ten commandments? You know, the one that says, thou shalt not covet? Yeah, that's the one that, that really just messed me up. That's the one that, that, that helped me realize that, that no matter how hard I try, I can never make myself perfect. No matter how hard I try to keep the law, I, I, I'm never going to be saved by the law because that's the one that I keep struggling with. You know, you almost get this picture of, of Paul just kind of going down the Ten Commandments like, like a checklist. You know, and, he, and, he, and he, you know, he's, like, he's like, you know, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yep, check, no problem with that. Thou shalt not commit murder. Yeah, I gave that up a long time ago. I haven't killed anybody lately. You know, thou shalt not lie. Check that one off. No problem there. Thou shalt not steal. Yep, no, that's not a big deal for me. Check that one off. And all of a sudden it says, thou shalt not covet. And he's like, wait a minute. I really want my neighbor's fishing boat. <laughs> you know, and, and so he's like, that's the one that kept tripping me up. And then Paul takes it even a step further in Romans chapter 7. And he says, you know what? The more I think about the thing that I don't want to do, the more I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. In fact, the more I think about trying to do the thing I should be doing, the more I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. You read it really fast. Like I've said a million times before, it's do-do. Because it's what you feel like when it happens to you. Like, don't just, just take my word for it. Look at what it says in the Bible, how the Apostle Paul felt about it. In the very last verse, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He goes through this whole struggle. I don't want to do this, and I do want to do that, and, and, you know, and I, I feel like due to, O wretched man that I am. Here's Paul's point. The point is, is that is, as long as we're trying to conquer sin through the law, we end up as a slave to the law. Because we're in this vicious cycle where, you know, the, the law uh, tells us not to sin, but we sin anyway, and now the law condemns us for sinning. So then we try uh, to obey the law again, but then we sin again. And so the law condemns us again for sinning. And it's over and over and over. It's like we're a slave to this cycle. And so really, the, the law just, just shows me that, frankly, I cannot save myself. That, that, that no matter how hard I try, you know, despite all my best efforts to, to make myself a better person, I fail to become a better person. Despite all my efforts to change myself, I fail to change myself. Despite all my efforts to obey the law, I fail and I break the law. 
And so the law just shows me that, that I cannot save myself, but rather I need someone greater than myself to save me from myself. So that's how Romans chapter 7 ends. But then the next chapter, here's how that begins. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what that's saying is that, you know what? When it comes to trying to find freedom from sin, when it comes to trying to find freedom from condemnation, listen, the freedom is not found in the law. No, the law brings condemnation. Freedom is not found from the law. No, the, the law reminds you of your failure. It, it, it holds it over your head. It judges you for it. There's no freedom in it. No, freedom from sin is found in Jesus. It's found in Christ. When we receive Jesus, the promise of our salvation, that's when we find freedom. And in that moment, the Bible says, that's when the Holy Spirit fills you. That's when the Holy Spirit it, it comes into your life and fills your life. In other words, that's when the Holy Spirit empowers you and actually enables you to live this new life. In other words, it's no longer you trying to do it in your own strength. It's no longer you trying to, trying to live this new life as a Christian in, in, in the flesh, in your own strength. It's now His Spirit living in you, doing it for you. And that's the right order. The right order is that you receive the promise of your salvation, namely Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit fills you and empowers you and starts changing you from the inside out. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.